Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we turn to the Book of Romans, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon entitled, Renovation of the Believer's Heart. You can join us in your Bibles by turning to Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. great, loving, merciful, living God, we, your people, worship you. Father, we cry out and ask for help. Our enemy is active, trying to bring despair, heartache, misery, luring us away from you, trying to bring us to doubt your goodness, But Father, again and again and again, we come to you, the source of all goodness, the giver of mercy. And we come to you and we worship you. And oh Lord, we cry out and say that we want to glorify you. We want to lift your name on high, but we are also desperately wanting your grace to come to us, to give us what we need. And so Father, we cry out and we ask for that once again, Our enemy wants us to despair, you call us to joy. There are a lot of times, oh God, you call us to joy when the circumstances don't look like we should rejoice. But our hope is in Christ. You have secured eternal life. You have prepared a kingdom. You have saved us by grace. Our joy is in Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you will give us help now to rejoice in our salvation, to rejoice in the hope that we have. So, Father, please come and give us grace that we can understand. Lord, you show us more of the mysteries of what you have done. And there are even complex and confusing matters in the text here. We don't want to brush them off just because it takes effort. It's worth it. So we ask, oh God, that you'll give us help to see, to understand, to comprehend, oh God. And as we see more of the insights into the gospel, the glorious work you have done to save our souls, that, oh Lord, you would bring us to rejoice in what you have done. So Father, please come and give us help now. We, your people, draw near to you. You give us the promise that when we do so, you will draw near to us. So we ask, oh God, meet with us, speak, minister to our hearts, give us understanding, bring us farther along in this work that you're doing, save those who are separated from you, encourage your people and all to your glory. Help me to do my job here to to feed and, and communicate the truths that are here, oh God. Make me useful. We pray these things through the strong name of our Savior. Amen. One day while walking in the woods with my mentor and some other boys that he disciples, we came across an old abandoned house. And while we stood there and looked at this falling in dilapidated, once pretty fantastic home, we had some pretty helpful conversation. We had some conversation about the curse, about the fact that one day all of our 
houses, no matter how elaborate, will one day look just like this falling in home. But whoever had owned this house, we, we looked in and we kind of made some guesses as to what it was once like. It was obvious that whoever had owned it, we, we guessed it to be somewhere from the late 1800s or so. We guessed that whoever had built it had been pretty wealthy because it was somewhat large for that time era. We could see remnants of some beautiful woodwork that had been there inside. But now, now the boards were aged by weather. The old wood siding was rotting and falling off. Floor joists and beams inside had finally given way over time and the second floor had collapsed into the first. This house that had no doubt once shined with the beautiful colors of freshly finished oak was now just gray and rotting. Looked like there were mice and snakes in the walls and the floorboards. Chimney was falling in. And we could see what had once been beautiful. Now the curse had overtaken. But I want you to imagine for a second, you're, you're picturing this once beautiful home. Imagine for a second that there was a couple who came upon it, walking in the woods, saw it and decided we were, they were going to buy it. Now, as they went to go do it, it wouldn't cost them very much money to buy this crumbled in piece. And surely as they would try to buy it, someone would try to talk him out of it because this was not just an outdated home with a little wallpaper. This was something that just needed lit on fire. But they decided, no, no, we really want a challenge. And so they bought the home. And then for the sake of illustration, please don't think me dumb, but let's pretend, play along with me. Let's pretend the house was alive. The house could think and the house could even speak. The couple purchased the home and they said to it, we are going to restore you. In fact, we're not just going to restore you to your former glory. We are going to make you more wonderful than you ever were. We're going to recreate you. Renovate. We're going to transform every detail and every part. So the house, which before now had been destined to destruction, rejoiced at the promise of being brought to glory. And so the couple got started. They started with the more obvious things. You know, that second floor collapse. They worked to jack it up and brand new ceiling joists, brand new beams and such. And though it hurt every time they pulled a nail, they smashed a board, the house rejoiced because it could see the progress being made. The roof was replaced. Brand new shingles. And though it caused pain every single time a nail was driven into its top, the house rejoiced in seeing the very obvious progress. And every single time that the couple did something really obvious, the house was happy through these things. But as time wore on and days turned into years and every rusty nail was pulled and all of the pain day after day, after day, the house began to groan. The house began to grow frustrated, agitated. The house began to think back to the days before all this work was going on. At least then I wasn't in pain every day. I mean, I know I was falling in, but at least there wasn't this ongoing 
trials and difficulty and circumstances and some of the parts, some of the projects that the couple performed on the house just absolutely felt like death. Some of the parts the house, well, the house thought were still pretty okay when compared to other houses. Surely you don't need to rip out the stairs. Surely that's not so bad. But the couple kept saying, trust me, when we are done, you will be more glorious and more beautiful than you ever were. And on and on, this laborious and tiresome process wore on. Well, in our illustration there, we can think about justification. This word that Romans has been teaching us about it, that is the moment that a soul understands the message of salvation turns from their sins, trust in Christ and is made right with God, forgiven of sins, granted eternal life. In that moment, that instantaneous moment, we can think about justification as the moment that the couple purchased and took possession of the home. It happened in an instant. To the house, not much seemed to change at that moment. Just like to you who are in Christ, I don't know about you, but the moment that I turned to Christ, I didn't understand these dozens of things behind the scenes that God did. These legal matters, the change of possessions that like the changing of a deed from one name into another, that we came to belong to God and come into a new covenant. And there was a, a payment, a ransom. There was the sacrifice and justice. I didn't understand all of these things. Romans has been telling us an awful lot of things legally technically that had to happen in order for us to come into the possession of God. There were a world of things that happened at our justification that we probably didn't know at time, legal matters, but it happened and those legal matters made way for the work of renovating. And so you might think about in our little illustration there, the process of the couple renovating transforming, recreating to be like this work that God is doing in us of this word that the Bible is using of sanctification. So all of chapter six, as we were studying sanctification was showing us this work of God transforming us from one degree of glory to another, practical life change, leaving sin, growing in obedience, growing in maturity. God is at work in us day by day. Well, in chapter seven, God continues to instruct us Christians about this process we're in right now. And there continues to be instruction about how things that God did in justification are leading to and even pushing us into our sanctification. Now, it is important that we understand who the we's, the you's, and the ours are as I speak today. This is always important when you're reading the Bible. When I say that you are being sanctified, we, we all have to understand that the you that I speak of there, the you that scripture speaks of, is you who are attached to Christ. You who have repented of your sins, that means to turn away from rebellion and to turn to Christ, knowing that you need to be saved knowing that you need your sins forgiven and you have trusted in him alone, not your works, but Christ. And so if you've not done that, 
If you've been resisting, there's been a part of you that's always kind of holding back. You won't fully bow the knee. You won't fully believe this whole message that you actually need this and that there is actually a hell that you're heading to if you are not saved. Then you have to understand that you are not yet in this process that we're talking about of sanctification. You've still not had the first part take place and that's what you need. You need to turn to Christ to be saved. But for you who are in Christ, God goes to great lengths to show us what he is doing, what he accomplished and how that contributes to what he is doing in this transformation. In chapter six, seven, and the first half-ish of eight are all about this work, this stage of our salvation, the transformation. Um, so like we've done for some other chapters, I, I think that it is helpful to spend at least a little bit of time looking at the big picture. So we fly up to 10,000 feet, we look at the whole scenery before we zoom the lens in too tightly and look at individual verses. I want to tell you a little bit of what's coming in the, in the coming chapters, the coming sections that are there to sort of see where we fit in the line of thought. So if you remember, in this greatest theological treatise of history, the Spirit of God led Paul to give the central idea back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, if you remember that there. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The rest of the, book, the, rest of the first 11 chapters is God explaining in further detail that sentence. What is this gospel? What is this salvation? What do you mean that I get it by faith? Chapter after chapter has taken one of those phrases or one of those words and has further explained it. Chapters three through five were all about justification, your need to be made right with God. But chapter six then brought us into this next stage beginning to show us sanctification. The process where God is transforming our lives, making us more obedient, more holy, more like himself. And you'll notice that one of the things that's been happening here, this is, there's a reason why a lot of people who start the book of Romans quit. <laughs> there's a lot of complexity. God goes to great lengths to explain legal technical matters that had to happen for God to pardon you. And then in the section we're in right now, God is going to a lot of length. And I ain't gonna lie, like there's confusing parts here about what it took for God to bring about change, for God to bring about life transformation. And, and, and we need to, again and again, as we come to confusing parts, because we're gonna say this again when we come to chapter nine, when we meet confusing parts, we just have to die to that idea that says, yeah, I, I don't want all this stuff. I don't want to be confused. Jesus died for you. It is worth it to lean in and work to wrestle through these confusing things because as we come to understand them and little by little when the light bulbs come on, the light bulb isn't just a light bulb of intelligence. It's a light bulb of worship. When the light bulb comes on and like we get it, this is something else Jesus accomplished to save my soul from hell. There is another degree of worship. 
There is another degree of joy that we come to in understanding this. It was not easy to save us. It has not been easy to transform us. God went to great lengths and he is showing us what he has done and what he is doing. And every single part of this is meant to lead us to worship. And so what we saw in chapter six is how these legal things that God did in our justification lead to and push us into our sanctification. Like the couple bought the house in order to renovate it. God bought us in order to renovate us. God bought us in order to transform us. God did not buy us so that we would feel like we had some fire insurance and then go on to live in the flesh. He bought us to transform us, to prepare us for glory to come, and then there is a day when the work will be finished. But we are to, with zeal and joy, move forward in this work that he is doing. And so chapter seven continues this teaching and the next several sections are, are showing this. So. Uh, the book divides up into several sections and chapter six through eight is, is a section within the bigger section. And six, seven, and eight are dealing with sanctification. And let me just kind of, if you'll follow along with me and maybe look at some of the subheadings in your Bible. I, it is helpful to see the, the bigger groups and ver, uh, sections of verses there. Let me kind of show you the sections to come. There are five more sections before we finish chapter eight. So in verses one through 13 of chapter 17, Paul takes a truth that he had mentioned very briefly back in chapter six, and he comes back to it and he holds it up for us to look at more closely. We've seen that done over and over again, haven't we? It's gonna keep happening in the book of Romans. Something is mentioned quickly, and then later we're gonna study it more in depth. The single truth that is examined in verses one through 13 of chapter seven is this, Christ freed us from the law. What does that mean? That's what we'll be talking about in a little bit. But verses 20, excuse me, verses 14 to 25, the primary truth is still talking about sanctification, but here's the part of sanctification that it is talking about. It's talking about the ongoing war. The battle we fight in our sanctification, in the indwelling sin, the sin that remains in us, the frustrating battle of the flesh warring against the spirit. And then in chapter eight, still in sanctification, but here's the next truth that is highlighted more. I mean, there's a lot going on there, so I hope I'm not being overly simplistic, but the main idea truth there is this, the Holy Spirit is at work in us in our sanctification. That's the place where more in depth, where we have that explained right there. And then we come to verses 17 to 28-ish. You know, there's, there's some overlap. But 17 to 28, still talking about sanctification. But here's the next part we talk about. Suffering. Part of sanctification is suffering. And when we suffer in it, we groan. We long. We ache. And what we're groaning for is the last section of chapter eight. And what happens in verses about 28 to the end there is just one of the most glorious. It's one of the most glorious places you will ever read in your life. 
one of the greatest places in all of the scripture. Some have called it the highlight of the entire Bible. We are safe in Christ and there is a glorious glorification to come that God is moving us to. So as we look at all of those things, there really is a, um, if you're going to disciple a brand new believer, I would give the encouragement that the very first thing you do is an eight week study and do the eight, first eight chapters of the book of Romans. That in a quick way to see the, the line of thinking of moving us from our need of salvation, what Christ has done, sanctification, glorification, this line of thinking, this is summarizing what God is doing in our lives. So this is, this is where we're moving. This is what's coming in the next few sections. Let's turn our attention then back to chapter seven. So look at it with me again, please. Let me tell you a little bit more, big picture again, what's happening in chapter seven. Breaks down into two main parts. And the word law, you see that there? The word law is used 23 times in this chapter. Wanna guess what the subject is? We, we see the big topic in verses one through 13. We have been set free from the law, the law we were born under, and we're gonna talk about what that law is, if that's confusing. And now we're under a new jurisdiction. We are connected in a new way. And then the second section, verses 14 to 25, is a very encouraging section. Maybe I'm just weird, but I find it very, very encouraging. <laughs> when you read it, it doesn't come across immediately encouraging. There's a lot about sin and guilt and struggle. So what in the world is encouraging? Well, I find it encouraging that Paul struggled too. Paul gets really honest about how frustrated he was with himself. Paul gets really transparent about the fact that day in and day out, he battled. It was a war to honor God. And even though he didn't want to, he kept falling to sin over and over and over again. Do you ever just feel like a pathetic waste because of your sin? I find it encouraging that the most godly men and women through history in the, in, the, in the scriptures revealed to us, our heroes, they struggled too. They battled too. And it's a real part of living this Christian life that we're stuck in this body for now, but we're groaning for the day of deliverance. We're groaning for the redemption of our body. But what God has done now is he has begun in a real way, he has begun to set us free. He has begun to renovate. He is at work transforming us and it's frustrating. We look around the dilapidated house and there's still a lot of parts where there's mice and snakes and rusty nails. We see it, it's frustrating, but we have the hope that it's gonna be finished. He's gonna bring us to final redemption and we are to labor and not grow weary now in the work of transformation. So this is the big picture of where we're moving. So we begin then in verses one through 13. And in that section, I see four main points made. Today we'll cover the first one, uh, which is verses one through six, simply making the case and giving a bit of explanation for the fact that we are freed from the law. So point number one is freed from the law and bound to Christ. An illustration is used here to help us understand our situation. 
of when you come to faith in Christ, when you are justified, you're brought into a new arrangement, a new situation, a new condition, a new law, a new jurisdiction. And an illustration is used here to help us understand. It is important. We won't understand who we are in Christ if we don't understand how we relate to the law. And when I use the word like that, when the Bible uses it as a, as a helpful way, you've seen several times before in Romans, we can, we can speak of the law with a capital L because we mean a specific law. The law that we are born under. We must remember that we are born into this world in the same situation that Adam and Eve were created in. All the way back there, in Romans, when God gave them his law, and you remember the conditions, we've gone over this a bunch of times, obey me and you will live, disobey and you will die. That's the basic scenario that we're all born into. That's the law. I have to obey God, and the way that I'm right with God is by my obedience. The law has a power, a jurisdiction, and there's also a punishment. There's a punishment if I break that law. So if I break the law of God, what I deserve, even if in the smallest of ways of how we think, I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve the punishment of God. So when the Bible is speaking of the law right here, it's capital L, think covenant of works, covenant of life that we've talked about here, the arrangement that I obey and live, disobey and die. So an illustration is used to help us understand this. It's the illustration of, of marriage. Look at verse one with me again. He says, or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. There, there are a couple times in Romans that Paul shifts his attention to a different group, even within Christians. So later in chapter 15, he'll speak to Gentile Christians. And he says, I got a word for you guys. Right here, when he says, I'm speaking to those who know the law, he is speaking to the group of Jewish Christians who were very, very familiar with the law because they spent so much of their time studying the law. So I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. If you're under the authority of the law, it has authority over you until you die. And then he gives an illustration to help us understand that just like in marriage in verses two through three god designed marriage to be a lifelong covenant it's not an eternal covenant jesus explained to us that in the resurrection to come you will not be married to your current spouse marriage was designed for this life this age it is a lifelong covenant um and if a man or a woman were to, to, a husband or wife were to join with someone else while they were still in that lifelong covenant, then it is adultery. And we do need to explain this part as well. That also includes divorce. And it matters to our illustration here. It includes divorce. If a husband or a wife divorce and then they join with someone else, Jesus explained in Matthew 19, unless it is under certain conditions, and that's a, another thing that comes in here, unless it is under certain conditions that it is a form of adultery. Why? I mean, that's not how our culture thinks of it. Why is it that? Why did Jesus say that? Because what, what God has joined together, let no man separate. 
It is meant to be an attachment for life. And understand that as we say that, that might raise questions in your mind, okay? Like there are a lot of questions that get asked then, like, like someone could ask, well, does that mean that like a, a Christian who had, who had been divorced in their past, does that mean that they can, they can never remarry? Listen, there, this passage is not to meant to be exhaustive on the subject because there are other places that come back to this, like 1 Corinthians 7, I believe does allow for remarriage under certain circumstances and certain conditions. There are certain sections in the law of Moses that mentioned, I believe, when there is an allowance for remarriage and such. So just understand this. We're not getting into every single question exhaustive. If this creates questions in your mind, by all means, ask them after the service, in email, whatever. But this is just making the basic point for the sake of an illustration. And the basic point for the sake of the illustration is that it is in effect until death. If a woman is married to a man, she is tied to him and he to her. She is attached to him and he to her. And she is under his authority until death. And I do want you to hear that last phrase that I used there. The illustration is specifically given from the perspective of the wife and not from the husband. It could be given from the perspective of the husband, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't go as far as the perspective of the wife. Because part of the point that we're going to see is that how we related to the law before Christ is that we were under the law's authority, just like a wife is under the authority of her husband. By the way, interesting Greek word used here when Paul speaks of the married woman here, the Greek word that he uses is hupandros. Andros is the word for man. Hupo is a prefix that means under. So a married woman is an under man woman. So once again, let me just kind of make the point here that if you reject complementarianism, okay, so that's the big word that we use to refer to the order that God has established within marriage. If you reject complementarianism, you don't just lose the sections of the Bible about marriage. You lose a lot of other places as well. Part of the illustration here is dependent on the order that God established. It breaks down. So you and I are born under the authority of the, the law, capital L, our little babies, our little babies that we love, those that have not yet responded to the gospel, they are right now under the law. They are not yet in Christ. They are not yet in the new jurisdiction. They are right now under the law and need to be saved out of it. So verse three so within marriage, if the husband dies, then she is free. Many times people ask the question, if your spouse dies, are you free to remarry? Or is that adultery? Is that betraying um, your deceased spouse? Um, because marriage was designed to be a lifelong covenant, not an eternal covenant. If a spouse dies, the Bible shows you are free to remarry. You're, you're not betraying. You're not committing adultery. Though my wife tells me she would haunt me if I ever tried. We got to work on her theology. Okay. But what the Bible says is you are free to remarry. And so then here's the point made in verse four. Just like in marriage, if there is a death, 
then the attachment, the covenant, the binding is now dissolved. Well, this has happened to you who are in Christ. For us who are in Christ, remember back in chapter six, what we learned? At justification, we are counted as having died with Christ. And chapter six showed us that when we died with Christ, attachment to him, that means that we died to sin, that there's a way we've been set free. And now we're being shown that when we died with Christ, this is how we have died to the law and we are free from its jurisdiction. What that means is we are no longer under the situation where the law condemns us. Being under the law meant that I was under the list, yes, but it also meant I was under its power, its authority, its jurisdiction, and I was also under its penalty and every effect that the law has. And we're gonna see there are some effects that the law has that my mind wouldn't get there and I wouldn't understand unless the Bible told me. There are some things, it's kinda like, oh, I never thought of that. There are effects that the law has. We understand that we're under the penalty of the law and that's maybe the easiest part to understand. I'm freed from the penalty, but there are other effects that the law has and we're set free from then. You have died to the law. Now let's, let's make a clarification here. The law did not die. You died to the law. That's a common misunderstanding. Um, some sometimes kind of have this idea that when Jesus came, it's kind of like he just looked at the law and goes, this isn't working, let's just get rid of it. And like, it's not there anymore. No, 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 you were born under the law. Our little babies are under the law. They need delivered out of the law. The law is still here. And a major point that we're gonna have to make over and over again, the law is good. The, the law is holy. The law is righteous. Jesus didn't come and said, man, this law is evil that God created. <laughs> no, the law is good. The problem is me. It's me. I can't keep it. And therefore there's hostility. There's not hostility because the law is mean. Okay. Law's not mean. I'm a rebel. I'm a rebel against the law. That's the problem. So God made a good law. But in grace, do you see that there's a difference between something just technically being right and then mercy upon mercy, overflowing grace. God has given the overflowing grace to save us out from under the situation that we were in under the law. So you in Christ, you have died to the law. You who are not yet in Christ, you're resisting, you're still under the law. And what that means is this. You are obligated to keep every jot, every tittle, every dot of the I, every cross of the T, and you must keep it to perfection in order to be saved. And if you say that's not fair, the only thing that we can say is read the Bible and you're going to see it's, it is fair. We were created to glorify God. We were created to obey him. If you are outside of Christ, you're on your own. And that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. You in Christ, you have died to the law. And so the biggest question then is, what, what does it mean that we've died to the law? We've already started referencing some of those things. And this is, this is one of the more complex and kind of confusing parts. And so just, I think in the next 10-ish minutes, if you'll lean in and stay with me, we'll understand what it means that we've died to the law. 
I think there are three big things that we can, we can say that it means that we've died to the law. But let me, let me first mention this right here. When we hear the word law, some of our confusion comes from the fact that the Bible will use the word law slightly different than how we in English oftentimes use the word law, okay? And so just, you know, different languages, different customs, different cultures. When we in English use the word law, we usually only refer to one thing. We're usually only referring to a list of laws. So when you and I hear about the law of God, I don't know about you, but a lot of times I think to 10 commandments, okay? And the, the list that's there through Exodus 21 to 23, okay? So that list, but the Bible uses the word to refer, refer to more than just the list, but also the law's power and authority, and it carries penalty with it. All of that is included when the Bible uses the word law. Let me, let me show you one for instance. Jump over to chapter eight for a second. And let me show you this. Uh, Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. See, two laws referred to there. The law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. When it refers to either one of those, it's not making specific mention of just a list. It's talking about the situation. It's talking about the jurisdiction. What jurisdiction are you under? What authority are you under? If you move from one country to another, you come under a different authority. So what power are you under? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus or the law of sin and of death? Outside of Christ, you're under the law of sin and of death. The law of sin and of death is the law that chapter seven is referring to, not because the law is bad, but because I keep breaking the good law of God. So it has become to me a law of sin and of death. Is that making sense? We've seen how the Bible uses that there. That's a big help when it comes to this. So let me, um, let me mention three, three things that means that we have been set free from the law. First is the most obvious We've already referred to it. Back in chapter three and chapter five, we saw we've been set free from the penalty and the punishment of the law. The law said, disobey and you will die. I don't wanna be under that. It's not that it's evil, but I'm glad I'm not under that. Jesus sets us free from under the penalty and the punishment. Chapter seven is going farther. So number two, being free from the law means we have left its arrangement its authority, its rule. We have come under a new arrangement. The old arrangement has ended and we've come into a new arrangement, a new condition, a new situation, a new law. Don't ever think Christian that like there's not a list of things we're supposed to obey. The situation that has changed is I'm no longer under the jurisdiction where if I disobey, I die. In Christ, the law of the spirit of life, yeah, there's a list of things we're supposed to obey, but I know I will fall short and I don't die from falling short. We obey because we love him. He joins us and out of gratitude, we serve in a new, fresh, inspired kind of way. So when we were under the law, it was a situation where it was based on our performance. That's what determined our standing with God. Another way to say that you're under the law is to say, it's all on you. It's all up to you. 
you better do it. You better live up to the expectations. You're on your own. You're left to the power of your own flesh. The situation in Christ brings us to something new. And here's the third. It's very much connected, but there is an additional truth that's taught. When we were under the law, it had an effect on us that we don't like to admit. Look at verse five with me. Seven, five. For while we were in the flesh, so we were under the law in the flesh, the sinful passions, the lust, the cravings, which were aroused by the law. That's interesting language, isn't it? They were incited. They were urged. They were pushed by the law that was at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. What is that saying? What it's saying is it's not the law's fault. Okay. Again and again, this passage calls the law good. It's holy and righteous and good, but our hearts are sinful, depraved, we are sinners by nature, and here's one of the things that it means to be depraved. At our core, we are rebels. Rebels hate authority. Rebels hate law. I don't want anybody telling me what, don't you try to tell me what to do. We're rebels by nature. Someone who has rebellion as a monster living inside of their hearts. What happens when someone tries to tell me what to do? I, I, I'll go through a lot of effort to make sure I don't do it. Oh, you, you try to tell me the speed limit? Huh, I'll show you. It's, it's always, it, it's, it's a teacher giving instruction to that child that has the, you know, we all have rebellious hearts and every child has this in them, but you know, the, the child in the class that has the real rebellious heart, just the teacher giving an instruction makes them want to jump on the table and do just the exact opposite of what the teacher said. This is what it means to be rebellious at the heart. What it means to be rebellious at the heart is when somebody tells me what to do, I want even more to do this evil thing than I did before you told me. And in fact, I might even do something stupid just because you told me not to do it. That's the rebellious heart. And so what it means that we are freed from the law and we are brought into a new situation means this. God has brought heart change to us. You are freed, not entirely, but in the same way as all the other stuff, we are freed in a real way from our rebellious nature. Being attached to Christ means he brings us into a new situation where there are additional graces. See, under the law, you're on your own. It's your strength. In Christ, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now that's spoken specifically about suffering, but that same truth is taught about other things. I'm not left on my own any longer. There are new graces. I'm attached to the vine called Jesus. He's flowing help to me in a way I didn't have before. The grace of God comes to us in a way that doesn't make obedience easy, but it does make obedience possible and common and growing. There are new graces. God sets us free from the rebellious nature and brings us, do you remember Jeremiah 31? In the new covenant, I will write my law on their hearts, meaning new desires are given where I begin to want 
to honor God. So we go from, you tell me what to do, I'm gonna break it just because you told me to now over here, Psalm 119. If you want some meditation this week to help you to counter counter with Romans 7, Psalm 119 says about 50 different ways, and that's not exaggerating because it's the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses, about 50 different ways of saying, oh, how I love your law. Your statutes are my delight. I rejoice in your commandments. We move from this to this. The law of God is written on our hearts. And then here is perhaps, I'd say, the greatest additional grace that is given when it comes to obedience and this change of heart. Look at verse six with me again, seven, verse six. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit. Now, if you're keeping track, that's the first time in this letter that the other than the introduction, uh, introduction mentioning something, the first time in the line of logic used that the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer has been mentioned. And if somebody would say, well, whoa, whoa, Paul, I mean, what do you mean we serve in the Spirit? He would say, well, hang on, we're coming back to it in chapter eight. We're gonna take that little truth briefly spoken and we're gonna hold it up. It's not a little truth, that was a misspeak. We're gonna take that little sentence, but a big truth, that we serve in the newness of the spirit and we're gonna hold it up later in chapter eight verses one through quite a few things. And we're gonna see chapter eight verse 13 say things like, we put our sin to death by the spirit. You don't put the sin to death by yourself. You think you're that strong? You don't put it to death by yourself. We put it to death by the spirit. And then verse 26 will say, uh, the, the spirit helps us in our weakness. That, that's a general principle. And then he applies it to one thing. Like, here's an example. We don't know how to pray. You think you know how to pray? We don't know how to pray. The Spirit helps us to pray and honor God. So we've served in a newness of the Spirit. Being freed from the law means we're saved from its penalty. We're saved from a circumstance where you're on your own. And we're saved into a new situation with additional graces. We are now under grace. We are under a new jurisdiction. And it is a free and beautiful, glorious and inspiring jurisdiction. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We still have commandments we're supposed to obey, but everything has changed. I don't obey God in order to be saved. I obey God because I am saved and out of joy Now we walk in obedience because I want to honor my God who saved me. So let me end with this. Look at verse four again. We're gonna make this truth right there, the final truth we look at today. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that's Jesus, in order that we might bear fruit for God. When the Bible says statements like, so that, or in order, It is showing the purpose, the reason. Why did the couple buy the house in order to renovate it for themselves? Why did God purchase you in order to renovate you, in order to remake you, in order to transform you for himself? And if we know we are freed, 
then we will obey out of joy. We need to know that we are free from the law. We need to know what it means that we are free from the law. And we need to know why God freed us from the law. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Jesus said, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. God saved us in order that we would bear fruit, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds, that we would glorify him by living a transformed life. So for us who are in Christ, let us run into this. A lot of this is for the minds, mind to contemplate, understand where we are, but then it needs to sink down into our hearts, the light bulbs to come on and for it to result in worship and in gratitude that we will joyfully be transformed and sanctified. And for you who are outside of Christ, for you who have been holding back, you who have not yet responded, do you not feel the truth of these things we've looked at? Do you not feel the truth that your heart has a rebellion against the authority of God? Do, do you not feel that the Bible is just describing you here when it explains the condition you are under? Christ wants to save you. The irony is that while you may think of your condition right now as free, the reality is you are in bondage to the law that condemns you. You must be set free from that law. On your own, you are not okay. You need Christ. You need forgiveness of sins and you need a new jurisdiction. Look to Christ. Believe. Cry out to him. Ask him to save you. And the Bible says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for the truths you've shown us here. Thank you for the joy that you give us in our salvation of learning more and more of what you have done. And I pray, God, that it will have practical effect. We're going to leave here in just a little bit. Father, I pray that we will leave as more, more grateful people. Lord, that worship will be soaring and we will give you an obedience this week that is like the newness of the spirit that you tell us, oh God. So help us, Father. I pray for any in this room that is not yet born again. I pray, God, that before this day is even over, that they will just be so drawn, so convicted that they will call out to Christ. Please bless us, oh God, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.